Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, thank you for trying something new. I promise we won't be talking about uh, the quarantine, COVID-19, or Zoom, because I can't get Ben to figure out how Zoom works, mainly because Ben is a bit of a Luddite. He mails all of his articles as well as rolls as well as rolls of film to all of his editors, um, and that's how they get the work done. But Ben, if you could plug the publications you write for, that would be really helpful, so people can see what kind of great work you write. First thing, just so you know, I'm going to cut everything you just said. <laughs> Second, uh, I you can find my work at Motor Trend. You can find my work at Automobile Magazine, at Driving Line, and at Inside Hook. And you can find my work at Autotrader.ca. Motor Illustrated, Nouveau Magazine, and The Drive. This week, Ben, we're going to talk about a, a story that you had published on Automobile Magazine uh, about collectible cars. Well, exactly non-collectible cars. What is the story here? The story is I'm sick of hearing the phrase modern classic, Sammy. I'm sure this is something you've heard thrown around. Uh, anytime some car company comes out with a vehicle that is somewhat fun to drive or powerful or radically styled, it's like, oh, modern mm-hmm. classic in the making. I also hear it regularly in everyday conversation about 400 times a day. It's really it's, – it is grating to be honest. Well, you need to change the company you keep. But I can't understand that being annoying. So in any case, there's a lot of cars out there though that seem like they should be modern classics. Like cars that were unique or fun for their time and yet I just don't think they'll ever make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I kind of wanted to explore that because – it's not that these cars are bad. It's just that to become a classic car, it takes more than just being somewhat interesting. You know, like there's a lot of cars from the past, uh, antique cars, you know, especially look at the 70s. It was a horrible decade. Once you get to the middle of that decade, the malaise era, there's just a ton of cars that are terrible. And they'll never be classics. And just because they're old and just because, you know, they have big block V8s doesn't mean that anyone wants them. And I think that you could you could fast forward that to like the 90s and the early 2000s. And you can be like, just because it had a lot of power, just because the car was produced in a limited quantity doesn't mean that 25 years from now people are going to be like, hey, I want that. Um, first of all, there are plenty of cars on this list that you've provided that are terrible. And if you saw them on the road today, the people driving them might not be enjoying themselves. Can we just get to this list? Because it's insane, these cars. And I've almost forgotten about so many of them. Um, is that okay? Do we, can we go into this? Can yeah, we get sure. into this? Let's talk about all right. Let's talk about what we want to talk about. So the first car on your list is a Jaguar S-Type. But not, not just that. It's the um, R, the S-Type R. This is a car with a 4.2 liter V8. It's a, you know, a, a sports sedan I, that I guess is meant to compete with the likes of, oh, please, an M5 or a CTS-V? I don't know, man. This this was an attempt from Jaguar to seem relevant, and they I don't think they, they really pulled it off. It's a supercharged engine. You forgot to mention that. And it's, oh, it's, 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 it's about 400 horsepower, so it was very fast. <laughs> uh, but the problem is that came with a whole bunch of caveats, and, and part of that was the interior of the S-Type S, S did not match the retro looks of the outside. Uh, it was very kind of Ford parts binny, Ford and Volvo. And um, The other issue is the car is terrible in terms of maintenance. Like it's It's really not an easy car to own over the long term. And uh, it was produced for a very long period of time, like 2003 to 2008. And in that period, there's a bunch of other cars, like the first-gen CTSV is in there. The E60 M5, I think, is in there. 
And those are cars that provide you with a, a much more emotional experience, a, a much better driving experience. It, with the M5, you're probably looking at similar maintenance costs. With the CTS-V, much less. So you have better options. So it's, um, it's kind of like this car was the lesser light of a field of interesting cars, and, and it just hasn't aged well. So I remember a couple of things about the, the Jaguar S-Type. First of all, it had a really weird shifter uh, uh, gear stick that was like in the shape of a J. Do you remember this? Yeah, the J, the J shift. Everyone, what is everyone the, what remembers was, the J shift. Everyone remembers the J shift. Okay, I remember that being bizarre. Second, I remember that this uh, this R didn't have a uh, a special limited slip differential. It had an open differential. Yeah, Why? which is exactly what you want with the four hundred horsepower sedan. <laughs> Why? Why did they do this? It's, this car sounds so like like so many bizarre ideas, or maybe overconfidence. In... And it, if you want this engine, you can also get it in a lot of other Jaguar products, like the XJR, which is a much nicer car, or the XK XKR, which would be the XK8 with the supercharged engine. So you can get a drop top convertible. You can get a, a coupe. The XK, XKR Coupe. It's just there were a lot of other choices. And if you're going to buy this motor, this is probably the last package you're going to get it in. So I just don't – I just it, it's an, it was an interesting car at the time. Mm-hmm. 20 years later, it doesn't hold up. Okay, the next car on your list is another vehicle which uh, I think is actually – it needs to be forgotten entirely. This is the 97 to 2001 Cadillac Catera. Yes, so this car's on the list because Cadillac intended it to be special. They wanted this to be their three series fighter. They wanted it to be something that was fun to drive, and they wanted it to kind of revitalize the brand. It's ninety seven to two thousand one, like you said, and mm-hmm. it, it had a really boring two hundred horsepower V six, even more boring styling, which was uh, from the Opel Omega, uh, just imported over from Europe, and it wasn't that fun to drive. Um, it, it it wasn't very reliable either. And it faded out. It's interesting because Cadillac would bring out the CTS a couple of years after this car died. In 2003, the CTS hit the market, and that was radically different from anything that Cadillac had done. And mm-hmm. it's, it, I think the Katera taught them a lot of lessons about what they needed to do to capture people's attention. And, and that is mainly not try to use one of your other subsidiaries to... Yeah, try not to have the most boring styling in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we got to talk about something that happened in the marketing materials of the Cadillac Catera, which I need to know whether or not was effective or not, because this is this was called the Cadillac that zigs, um, in a reference to its handling capability, I suppose. But in re- in in regards to that, Cadillac also had a, a little cartoon. Is this a duck or a bird? It's a it's, duck. It's I a think. duck because there's ducks in the grill, and they faced it the opposite direction and gave it a color and tried to make it. They gave it a whole personality, and you know what? No one cares. No one's buying a car. No one's buying a car because this isn't the. This is not the Kia gerbils or hamsters. Sorry, it's this is this is luxury. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's just such an odd gambit. A duck. I mean, duck. there are so few. There are a bunch of uh, like animals that I can relate to luxury lifestyle and if they were animated i mean if it was a badass like lion or tiger or exotic animal you know maybe a huge like bird of prey of some kind but a duck i don't know man that that was that was a decision that needed to we're gonna get don't add us duck lobby but i'm sure we're gonna get a lot of hate mail for sammy's anti-duck sentiment no no anti-luxury duck that's all wow okay so ducks can't have nice things that's what you're saying no not at all they are they're grumpy they they 
they're not about the, the 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 luxurious lifestyle. Moving on to another animal that you'll probably hate too. Um, <laughs> in the same era, there's another car that came out that took a bunch of risks but didn't quite go far enough to be interesting, and that's the was one of the risks a cartoon duck. <laughs> no, <laughs> the, what it, it was the '99 to 2002 Mercury Cougar. Um, and if if people <clears throat> excuse me it's remember a cool the looking car, man. It was, and it was so different from every cougar that ever came before it because for a long time the cougar was either a clone of the Mustang. Well, that's not fair. In the first couple generations, the cougar looked pretty different from the Mustang, and mm. they, they had the same platform, but, you know, styling was, was, was different. But then they kind of became clones of other Ford products, and towards the end it was just another Thunderbird with okay. a different grill and a different front end. But the, the, the cougar, the final generation cougar came out like – I think five or six years after the first, the the, the final Thunderbird clone, mm-hmm. and they just brought it over from Europe, kind of like the Katera, uh, but it was it was radically different looking. It had a whole bunch of ovals in it. It had some angles. It was interesting to look at. It, it borrowed the platform for the Contour, mm. which was a fun to drive car. Mm-hmm. But what it a never, compact, I think, right? Yeah, but what it never got was power, Sammy. It had 170 yeah. horsepower. From a, from a two point five liter, yeah, yeah, a two point five liter V six. If they had had a two hundred and fifty horsepower version of this car, I think they might have been able to draw attention away from fans of vehicles like the Acura Integra. I think it could have been that interesting. I really think I, I'm going to be blunt. I think this is one of the most interesting looking cars of this era. Um, I think it was very sleek. It was very smooth looking, um, and, and it never really was jarring. It looked attractive without. Without and unique without uh, offending anyone. I thought that was really important about it. But the engine, that output, 2.5 liter V6 and only 170 horsepower, especially in a car that I think has the brand recognition, like a Cougar, I think for certain people who recognize the Cougar name, they would have expected something with a lot of power or a lot of performance, right? Well, I I think the Cougar name had really cooled at that point. I think that it was kind of, it had become a car for, you know, retirees. Um, but it th- this was trying to make a new market. I mean, the Mercury brand disappeared very soon after this, if not immediately yeah. after this. It's just it's t- it's too bad. It's a missed opportunity. It's the kind of car that you'll you'll look like you'll look back and it'll be quirky, but mm-hmm. not but not something that is memorable. You know? The next car on your list, I'm not sure if we need to talk too much about it, but this is the 2011-2013 Aston Martin Signet, um, which I think was designed to be a collector's car and. Just couldn't. It just couldn't be a collector's car, well, right? It was, like, it was actually designed because Aston Martin could not afford to meet European emissions and carbon emissions standards. Okay. And they had a whole bunch of taxes they would have had to pay. So they tapped Toyota on the shoulder and said, hey, can we borrow the IQ? <laughs> yeah. And Toyota the- was like, sure, you can have the IQ, which is like a tiny, tiny ultra subcompact two-seater hatchback. Mm-hmm. And they put a big Aston Martin grill on it and jacked the price up. Like, I think it was close to double what an IQ cost. Yeah. And they sold it for like a few years and no one bought them. And they kind of, it's one of the weirdest. Why would anybody buy it? I mean, I, it seems like such a bizarre idea. Let's say you're an Aston Martin completionist oh, and you God. have to own every Aston Martin ever made. Yeah. And unfortunately, that means you're going to buy a Signet. Uh, Which is an IQ. No one bought it because no one wanted it. Not because it's rare. I'm sorry. Not because it's desirable. It's just it's it's just rare because it was it was uh, an afterthought. And it's a super weird car. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes super weird cars become collectible, like the BMW Isetta, 
from mm-hmm. the 50s, I believe, the, the three-seater that the was based on a Messerschmitt design. That's something that's collectible, even though it wasn't popular and was strange. I don't think that will ever happen to the Signet. Uh, it's just a rebadge job at the worst possible time. The IQ is – it's ambitious. I believe the IQ used to boast that you can, you can somehow fit four people in it. Uh, it's probably impossible. Was it a two seat? I thought it was a two seater. Am, am I wrong? I think I've it had one. seats in the back. I've I driven one, and I can't. Maybe I'm mistaking it for another vehicle, but I remember it having seats in the back. What I remember about the IQ is that it had a real handbrake, and since the wheelbase was so short, you could drive facing a parking spot, like in the winter in a snowy yeah. parking lot, and then pull the handbrake and 180 the car and slide into the parking spot backwards each and every time. It was such a controllable car. Yeah, man, this thing had rear seats. Okay. <laughs> um. I also can't remember if the engine or transmission were anything worth talking about in this No, thing. not at all. No, like, Which is imagine... insane, like, when you look at the actual footprint of it, how it fits any sort of running gear, it's, it's a bit of a mystery, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's, go, let's move on to the next vehicle on your list, the, uh, the Chevrolet HHR, which was a car from 2008 to 2010, specifically the SS Turbocharged. This so is we, an interesting addition to your list. We talked about the HHR in a previous podcast, um, but this one, the SS, seems like it would be collectible because it had 260 horsepower from mm-hmm. a from an Ecotec. The Ecotec was a very good engine. If you were in the sport compact scene and you didn't care about things like build quality, you could be very <laughs> fast in a, in a Cobalt SS or an HHR SS. They were fast vehicles, right. but they were also terribly built, unattractive to look at, and they don't they don't last. So. It's like I don't know who would desire this car thirty years from now. It, it, it's kind of it's kind of like the you know the Italian roadsters, you know those Alfa Romeo spiders you see everywhere from the eighties and the seventies. Yeah, and they're super cheap to buy, but they're terrible to own. They're just not they're, the experience isn't great. So it's kind of like that minus the styling. <laughs> like, I, you know what's funny is there are this car I can't see a lot of. Um, attention for it because I think at the time people were more interested in the PT Cruiser um, and I think that had a turbocharged model as well. Yeah, it did. It was called the Turbo. (laughs) And um, I think people were far more like that was the vehicle to get. I don't know if that's considered a collector's car now, but it was the one that kind of like Yeah, if you had to choose, right? Like you would pick the PT Cruiser. It's a bizarre. If you're in a, a weird world, choice. it's a terrible choice. <laughs> if you're, in a, way, if you're being forced to choose, that's the one you would choose. Um, the next one, though, I think is something that's controversial, at least yeah. maybe to some of our listeners. Uh, the, Su- the Subaru Baja Turbo. Sammy, I know you're going to defend this vehicle with 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 a passion. Right, and in fact, in your story, you say specifically um, you're not super confident about it because the current owners and I think other Subaru um, enthusiasts kind of love this thing. Um, and I think they they will find it attractive uh, and collect and collectible. I know that's that probably doesn't mean much in the long term, but um, there Sammy, it, it hasn't. Yes. If you sell a car to crazy people, yes. you can't expect them to be rational about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I mean it's it's what what makes you think this isn't going to be a collector's item? So I I think the Baja is neat. I have nothing against the Baja. I think the only version you could claim might be collectible would be the Turbo. Mm-hmm. The XT, I guess, or whatever they called it. Yeah, XT. Um, it's still though. It's such an acquired taste. It's it's an Outback with no back. <laughs> it's it's yeah. a it's a weird looking vehicle. It's not very practical. It's the kind of car you like because it's absurd. 
And I think that it will always have cachet among a certain group of owners, as you mentioned. I just don't think it will have a broad appeal. I don't think it will spread out so that people – like, you know the Corvair uh, yeah. from, from Chevrolet? The Corvair has a very dedicated following. Why? Because it's actually it, – once they did the updates to the chassis, it was no longer as dangerous to drive. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty innovative. The Monza was pretty quick with the turbo. Um it's it's just an it's it's an interesting car, but it, imagine it, it, a car's collector status is once it got updated, it wasn't super dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> but but what I'm saying is, it has distinct appeal to people who like it, and they, those who like it like it a lot, right? And, right. And the the general market though, it's like Corvair. I have no interest. So it's it's weird. It's in its own bubble. Where if you want to find a really nice one, it's going to be from someone who owns one. Who's a passion? Who's passionate about that car and is is taking care of it? And you're gonna have to pay a lot of money. But if you just want to find like a janky one, you can mm. do that all day long for no money. So <laughs> I think it's the same thing with the Bajas. You can find a base Baja for no money, but a Baja Turbo, those are only owned by super fans, and super right. fans are really hard to buy cars from. Now there are other vehicles, I guess, in this class, like the like the El Camino or the Ranchero, which I think have some kind of collector. I don't know collector status, but they're kind of coveted by a select group as as well. And how does this, how does this compare in those in that regard? I don't think they're similar at all. I think you're no. talking about like uh, you know muscle era uh, El Caminos that have big blocks. I mean, that's a very specific slice of the market. If you go to the '80s and you look at the El Camino and the Caballero, uh, those are just not. They're not desirable. No one wants them. Um, okay. They're very, very, very low level of collector car. So I think the Baja, I think, might maybe achieve that status. But I think the Baja is even weirder than those cars. Okay. The next car on your list is the 98 to 2000 Ford Contour SVT, something that's related to that Mercury Cougar, right? Yes. Yeah, so this is this has the engine the Cougar should have had. It has a 200 horsepower V6. Um, it SVT put a lot of effort into the, this version of the Contour. It was legitimately fun to drive. It was not super reliable in the long term again, but they sold about 11,000 of them Ooh. over four years on the market or, or so. Mm. And uh, I, I don't know how I'm getting four years out of 98 to 2000, but uh, That's they, okay. can, they canceled the car. And it was like Ford made an effort to connect with people who wanted a European-derived, good-handling small sedan. And it turns out none of those people were shopping at Ford. But, <laughs> but why not put this effort into the Cougar? And then maybe the Cougar has a legitimate chance at being collectible. I think the SVT Contour is just going to be like – I don't a think weird, it's, yeah, it's a weird like bullet point or jot note. To exactly, the, it doesn't stand out enough to yeah. be collectible in the long term because it's just a sedan, right? If it had been a super sedan, that's one thing, but it was just a good sedan. Whereas the Cougar styling combined with the Contour mechanicals, who, who what might have been Sammy? Can we talk about the uh, the letter S the the letters SVT? What does that mean again? Uh, isn't it Special Vehicles Team? Special Vehicles Team, which is to suggest that every other vehicle ever made, not made by the SVT. It was an unspecial vehicle. What would you rather call? What would you rather those letters stand for? I don't know. Super velocity it, team. I just find it so funny that they're like, "Oh, my team was made by my car was made by the special vehicle well, team." In the and 80s, you're like, "Oh, mine was made by a machine, probably." <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe even a machine with a drinking problem. It was, it was Ford. 
Oh, um, anyway, I, I hate it, that. I hate the special vehicle. And you're like, well, shouldn't all of them be considered kind of special? What? I, I, why do you want to give a participation trophy to every car that's ever come out of the Ford uh, Ford assembly line? So it, you're it, right. I guess the, all the Corollas are all are, are UVTs, the un the unspecial vehicle team. The AVTs, anonymous vehicle. Yes, team. anonymous vehicle. In the '80s, Ford's team was called SVO, Special <laughs> Vehicle Operations. So this was before they were a team. It was just like they were one just, guy. One guy would hand it off to another guy. Yeah, yeah. It was like you'd make a phone call, or you'd pick a letter up out of a out of a drop point in, on, in a dark alley, and then you'd go do the next part of the project. It's like a relay. Yes, those cars were successful. The next vehicle on your list also comes from Ford. What do we? What's what's the deal here, Ben? Do you just hate Ford uh, collectors' just, items? Here? You know what? I've owned probably more Fords than any other vehicle at this point. <laughs> Entirely by accident, but yeah. um, no, so I don't hate them. But okay, the Ford Probe GT could have been cool. <laughs> uh, the second generation Probe lost its turbo four, it got a V6, it, it, it looked cooler, I think, but it just it, another again, we're gonna go back to the Integra. This is the same, same era as the Integra came out and you know took the market by storm, not just mm. the Type R, but the regular Integra was very popular. There's no there's no reason why the Ford Probe couldn't have been that cool. It had the same dimensions, it had similar-ish power, but it didn't really have the handling, it didn't have the build quality, and it didn't have the cachet of Acura. And it's just weird. Ford was unable to make a cool hot hatch in the 90s in a time when hot hatches were, you know, Civic Si, all this stuff. They were really finding their own their 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 legs. Right. And I don't get why the GT didn't do that, other than the fact that maybe it wasn't as powerful or fun to drive as it needed to be. I, I just think that if you were to look at the GT, you'd be like, oh, that's a cool car. But like 30 years from now, no one will be collecting it. I agree with you. First of all, I think the, the Pro GT is another attract, uh, somewhat attractive car. I always wanted to know what could what went wrong when you approach a vehicle with the same uh, mindset that you would a Mustang, the same – like. To, to use the kid gloves or the, spe- the special treatment on a vehicle as the Mustang, and then it turned out the way it was when it was it, considering it's um, not exactly performance um, oriented and not nearly as engaging or interesting to drive as the competition. It I, think, was, I think Ford just didn't have the money to do it right, and I think you know, I don't think they treated it as well as they treated the Mustang. I think they thought they could do it on the cheap and sell a bunch of them, and I think that was like a guiding philosophy. Mm-hmm. At Ford in the '80s, when the car was originally developed, mm-hmm. so it's it's just a sign of the times. And I don't know these other hot hatches that came out during this time. Uh, they all seem to be uh, European. With I mean, sorry, not European, Japanese. With the exception of, I guess, the GTI would be the European alternative to this. Oh, and segment. in Europe, I mean, in Europe there were a ton of hot hatches there too, right? You know, right. like we just didn't get them. Okay. And so these hot hatches came to America and they really excelled maybe by using their market as sort of a, a, a learning or a testing a test bed. And I guess Ford didn't have that kind of um, data or that kind of uh, market spread. No, and, and they had a hatchback. I mean, I think you could get a hatchback version of the Escort, but the Escort was really terrible. I mean, they had a good global Escort and a really terrible American Escort. Yeah. And that kind of that kind of just says everything you need to know about Ford in that, at that time period. That happens so often with American um, automakers. I mean, we've talked about GM and um, Vauxhall and Opel and Holden, who have had some really cool cars in other markets that just didn't – They either when they came to North America, they, they just couldn't 
fit in or they didn't want them here. So I guess it has a lot to do with costs, of course. But, you know, there, there's lessons to be learned from these, um, these automakers with these massive sprawling um, markets. The next vehicle on your list is, an, is a Japanese hot hatch. I'm surprised how you about your feelings on this. This is the, two, the 92 to 94 Mazda MX-3 GS, okay? Now, the GS is, a, is, is important because um, it had a, a 1.8-liter V6, which yes. is weird, right? Yeah, so that's the thing. The MX-3 GS is more weird than cool. And that's that's what's going to doom it. The only reason it has a tiny V6 is because of Japanese tax regulations, where they had to have a vehicle, the, the motor had to be less than two liters, or you'd end up paying a lot when you registered it. Mm-hmm. So when they brought that car here, it, it only had 130 horsepower, which mm-hmm. is fine, but it's not exactly amazing. And I think it was just a puzzler. I think people were just like, Okay, why do I want this car? I mean, it's 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 totally fine, but it's not. You, you know, with like the Integra's four cylinder, there was a big aftermarket. Um, mm-hmm. Honda had a lot of support for that motor across, you know, different versions of that motor across generations. Sorry, the various motors they put in the Integra. Keep going back to that car. <laughs> this was a one of one engine with almost no aftermarket support. So you either liked 130 horsepower or you didn't. And uh, it was very rare. They were hard to find. It was only made for a few years, and it didn't get good fuel mileage. So it was like you had to really want it. I I think it might – like the Baja, maybe this will be collectible because it's so obscure and there's nothing overtly terrible about it. (laughs) But it was intended to be special. And again, part of this this list is cars that were intended to be something unique and I think missed the mark in terms of historical accuracy – in terms of a historical view. So that's that's where I would put the GS, the GS version of this. But car. I'm from a generation where weird um, also equals cool. So, well, weird definitely equals cool. But I mean, you don't buy a car just because it's weird, do you? Maybe. Okay, I'm looking at buying a V across right now, so maybe I'm not exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm definitely buying the, that because it's weird. The Hyundai Veloster is another weird car, right? Nowadays, it has the, that weird asymmetrical layout. It has a different design than other yes, than yes, other it's, Hyundai's. It's weird and good. <laughs> so you're saying that the GS was not good. I'm saying that the Veloster will never be collectible because it's a mass-produced car. I'm yeah. not saying it's not good. I'm not saying it's not fun to drive. But I'm saying that the N could be collectible. But the regular Veloster with so many modern cars, there's just so many of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the, the huge number that are produced makes it really hard to see them being collectible. With this car, the GS, the MX-3, which I'm pointing at on my screen and no one can see me doing that because this is a, not a visual medium. Um, but you it, explained it pretty nicely. How big is, is your screen? Yeah, it's – how big is my screen? We're not yeah. getting into a pissing match. Is it color, cali- color calibrated? No, of course not. I'm a total amateur. So this car, it, it's – I just don't – I mean I don't think it's as weird as a Veloster. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Um, let's talk about the, the body style of this, uh, GS. It is a hatchback, but it also has this kind of like rear end egg shape, which has found itself on the other vehicles of your list. So the next vehicle on your list is the 95 to 99 BMW 318 coupe, but it's known as the 318 TI. It's not the 318 coupe. It's a, it's a hatch. It's TI. The coupe was uh, the the IC, I believe, or whatever. Maybe that was the convertible. Uh, Yeah. This is a weird, I mean, it's still a coupe. It has three, it has two doors. It's a hatchback. And uh, it's this awful looking thing as if they were trying to design a car and then just ran out of time and just chopped it off. They just cut cut the back off. It's just gone. (laughs) It's terrible. It's a shorter version of the 318 Coupe. Um, I thought these were ugly since day one. 
Yeah. They were super popular in Europe. Yeah, they, were really, they are. Really, so much so that they made an E46 version. This is an E36, and then the next generation 3 Series also had a TI, but they never brought that to North America because no one wanted these. So what is – is it just the look to you that it's, really makes this so – or is it the the mainstreamness of it in other markets? No, like it's the, the proportions of the car are hideous. It, it, it <laughs> that's all. And you're just like this was your opportunity to talk about it. They thought that they – they thought that this – they're like this is super popular in Europe. I think everyone will love it in the States because it was it was also I think the lightest version of the 3 Series at the time. Okay. But it just never caught on. There was a guy in my autocross uh, club – Many many years ago, who had one with a an M3 engine in it, like an S. Um, damn it! Why can't I think of the 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 engine that that, that was in the E46 M3? Nice. So that's a what an S. Why can't I th- S50 what S54? There we go. Okay. Uh, it was very fast, but I mean, you had to you had to you drive had to the car with it. a blindfold. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just terrible. Uh, anyway, the, the other thing is they they charged a lot of money for the car, mm-hmm. um, and it was ugly. So those two things together, no thanks. Uh, but the next one, the next one that was kind of like that was, was just less the, popular. <laughs> the C230 compressor, yeah, which was, I think, not as ugly a design. Mm-hmm. Um, Mercedes was going after the same kind of youth market the BMW was, so they, they it had a similar truncated look, but it was a little more fluid. Had a very high haunches in the back, yeah, uh, rising belt line. But the car, it, it had a supercharged four cylinder. Mm-hmm. And it was so unreliable. It was yeah. terrible. A friend of mine had one. It was constantly in the shop from new, just constantly yeah. in the shop. Uh, it didn't. It lasted a surprising amount of time on the market. Yeah. They made a sedan version too, I think, at some point. But these yeah. are just terrible cars to own. No one wants them now. They have. You you look at it and you're like, oh, it's a tiny Mercedes coupe. That's really cool. I think that's that, that's definitely going to be collectible. I mean, every almost every Mercedes coupe is collectible uh, if you look if you go back far enough. But I I counted that by saying there's a couple other examples of cars like this in Mercedes past, like um, the the when they had the SL in the 70s to the I want to say mid 80s, they made a coupe version of the Roadster yeah. that had a really awkward greenhouse. And oh, the, really? Are, I thought it was a neat-looking car. <laughs> uh, they are not very popular. Uh, okay. They're not that collectible. And I think this kind of falls into that same heading. I mean, I think additionally with the with the C the the old C coupe, I was I was saying I think they need Mercedes designers had to go through this awkward phase in the 2000s before they could get to where they are right now, and I think they have some of the prettiest coupes on the market. Um, and in fact, maybe one of the most cohesive design languages, which have pretty cars almost all across the line, with the exception of the SUVs. And uh, they have these ridiculous-looking things where they could try, um, you know, bubbly shapes like the like the compressor coupe. I found it interesting because I remember um, I had a 2003 C-Class, and uh, I remember when you would go on the forums, you would see these other um, these people from other markets. They would showcase their cars, and there were a lot of coupe owners in Europe. Additionally, beyond that generation in 2009 or 2010, they had a updated version of this car that we never got. And it was known as the CLC. Um, and we never we never received that. And I think for good reason that this design just didn't work out very well in our market. No, it's 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 best left forgotten. <laughs> I also know a lot of people with this two, this C230 engine. Um, and I've I've seen both. Um, very happy owners and both and very disgruntled owners. So it's very interesting to see what happened with this engine and how some people 
um, I guess, got lucky or maybe they took really good care of their vehicle or maybe they didn't, um, um, you know, use it to its full potential or beat on it or whatever. It's full and, potential. I don't know. And uh, and they have longer lasting lives and other people who think that they're doing everything they need to be doing and just cannot find a great um, experience with it. Okay. Okay. Well, so uh, we also had some uh, some news that we wanted to talk about this week. Uh, some stuff that had happened. Uh, I, I don't know. I would hesitate to call some of this news, but some of it is definitely news. Uh, Sammy, which piece did you want to start with? Uh, obviously, I'm going to talk about Rolls Royce because I'm fancy like that. But mainly because this has there's honey related Rolls Royce con- uh, content to be talking about. Not just so, honey related, but bee related. Yes, bee related. So Rolls Royce has 250 thousand bees in their workforce, and uh, they've made some honey. You know, they've stopped making cars, and you can't tell the bees to quarantine and stay away from each other. So now they're making honey. You know what? I just want to say that they say that these are bees are in their workforce, but I seriously doubt those bees are being compensated. Do you think you know, like HR is is the bee hive like a a, a union on its own when you when you when you, uh, you you work out a deal with the with the hive, and then all of the bees are therefore employed by you, or do you have to have each bee sign or or put their bee print on a piece of paper? Their to bee print, you know. So uh, for those who maybe new to the podcast, we cover an inordinate amount of automotive bee related news. Usually, it's Audi uh, talking about bees, Volkswagen talking about bees. They have a, a very strong and bee Bentley. Pillar. Of, of their business. Uh, so this Rolls-Royce thing is exciting to us because it's new to us. It, the, so the hives are named after the company's headquarters, the Goodwood Apiary. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's six traditional English-crafted wooden beehives, each bearing a polished stainless steel nameplate, handcrafted in the company's bespoke workshop. Pun intended, I'm sure. Um, I love... I, I don't understand why Bee News gets us so happy. It's so bizarre that there's there are huge companies... Um, that makes some of the most respected products in the world spending time and, and energy on this. <laughs> and, but at the same some, time, it's great. Like, why not? Someone in their PR department <laughs> was asked to sit down and write this press release about bees. And I'm sure they never thought when they were at PR school that they were going to have to, you know, lend it's their PR talents. Academy. PR Academy, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, what's, what's interesting also about – so the, the bee thing, it's a 42-acre site – with uh, wildflowers, shrubs, and half a million trees. I mean, humble brag, I guess. But uh, it's part of a campaign in England uh, that's supposed to reverse the decline of bees. And as a friend of bees, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that. Mm-hmm. But what's weird is there's two other things related to this campaign. One of them is that Sweden, in Sweden, a McDonald's created a tiny restaurant for bees called the McHive, <laughs> which is a beehive. That looks exactly like a McDonald's. And I don't know. It has a (laughs) drive-thru? Of course it does. (laughs) Those bees have places to go. Um, And anyway, it's apparently the world's (laughs) smallest McDonald's. It's so good. I love it. I want one. It's the smallest McDonald's ever built. But the other thing, if you want to talk about small, Hmm. um, Papa John's in UK created something called... The Biza, which is the world's smallest pizza designed exclusively for bees. And they have a picture of a bee eating a pizza, like a real bee. Um, it's the Bee Sting Pizza, which is honey drizzled, which is kind of a, a, a mixed message for bees, I think. Yeah. It's like, you took this from me and now I'm eating it from you. Anyway, it's less than an inch in diameter and it's topped with wildflowers. 
they did a lot of research into which ingredients should go on the pizza, according to the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. Yes. There was a, quote, tiny cookery school that made this special pie. Uh, a they're tiny not a- cookery school? Yes, they're not available to purchase. Uh, so I don't know how the bees are getting them, but you can get packs of wildflower seeds on social media. So anyway, bees, kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rolls Royce. We also can't figure out how to get the honey. They're yeah. giving it to people who cross. If you go to Goodwood and pick up your car, yeah. you get served the honey. So I guess the honey costs three hundred thousand dollars <laughs> and a trip to the and a trip to Goodwood there. and a trip to Goodwood. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, and Sammy, and we had some other news that's not B related. Not B related. This is about uh, Hyundai Genesis designer Luke Donkey Walker, who is um, he was uh, one of the major designers at um, at Hyundai and Genesis. Helped uh, create some of the most iconic vehicles that they have, or prettiest vehicles that they have. Helped craft a really solid um, design language, and now he's leaving the company. And we're and first of all, there's no reasoning for. The the departure? No, and it says it's it just says he's leaving to what spend more time with his family, Sammy. Yeah, that's what uh, I've been told here. Okay, so that's uh, it's it's strange because he was apparently in a position where he could have been running things at Volkswagen Group, uh, yeah. design wise. Uh, he decided to not do that, and he went to Hyundai and Genesis, and not all that long ago, like four years ago. So it's it's an interesting move, Sammy. You were thinking that. This might have something to do with the current design language that's being used at Genesis and maybe how the lack of success it's been showing. I'm not sure about the design language because they, they've clearly spent a lot of time now revamping their the Genesis design language and giving it, it more, it's a, a very um, unique identity. And I think they've achieved that with those two lines and these, um, and these big grills. And they're, they're pretty cool looking cars. But I think that the the success that genesis was probably hoping to achieve probably hasn't happened as quickly or as effectively as they had hoped by now um and we've been talking about genesis for a long time well before uh, the podcast started and i've always felt like they're right on the cusp they can break in but people just aren't ready to 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 swap in their 3 series or their or their c classes for g70s or um or the g80s and so- i think that has a lot to do with the fact that they only have one SUV. Um, it hasn't even hit the market yet, so that's another problem. Um, and maybe the success at, at Hyundai and, and Genesis in particular just isn't um, where they need to be. So he's he, he apparently the, he left on amicable terms. Um, he's not going to another company. Other vehicles that he's responsible for that I think are kind of important to point out would be the Hyundai Palisade. Yep. Which, which and the is, Telluride. Yeah, uh, I, don't, it doesn't, I don't know if he did the Telluride. Um, But he was directly responsible for the Palisade and the Elantra and Tucson. So those are, you know, some very important cars for for Hyundai. The the new Sonata, too, which looks very different. Yep. But uh, anyway, I mean, we wish him success and uh, curious to see how the company, which is so design focused at this point in its life, is going to replace him. I mean, it's also worth pointing out that he he designed the Lamborghini Murcielago and the Gallardo. You know, this guy, he's... He's a pretty top-notch talent when it comes to design, and he's made some pretty impressive things in the past. For him to just take a leave like that, it must be pretty serious. Maybe, um, maybe it's been an overwhelming time at Hyundai Genesis in developing all these new vehicles. Um, and I think he he also does. Sorry, I didn't mean to say that he designed the the Kia Telluride, but I think he also does provide some advice um, and consultation for the Kia design team as well. 
So, uh, we, wrapping things up this week, we had some listeners write into us, which we always appreciate. I uh, just wanted to shout out to Michael for for listening to us and cracking us up with his his message this week, which we will not read on the air. But uh, <laughs> we we do appreciate you listening and your support, and we're glad that we can um, we can bring joy to your household. Uh, and we had another message from Tim who had a question about car design specifically. He was asking us about trunks. So right. um, there's a bunch of ways. It's it's easy to not think about how car trunks are designed. But mm-hmm. there's two ways to pop a trunk up. You can use struts, which are, you know, they're small, they're compact, they're easy to, to package. And then there's gooseneck hinges, which are large pieces of steel that kind of swing up and down with the trunk. And the latter are more common because he's asking why – do we not see struts everywhere? Why do we see so many gooseneck hinges? So the, the real reason, and honestly, he kind of nails these, like, can it really cost that much to add? Yes. It's always a question of cost when you see things like this in a car, especially if the car is, is a very strong seller. So if they're making hundreds of thousands of these cars, the, each of those uh, struts that they'd have to install, it's not just the strut itself, but it's the assembly, the, the, the attachment points. It's the nuts and bolts. Each of those bolts, you know, if you're buying 100,000 of them, then you're buying 100,000 of them, and that's a cost. Whereas the gooseneck hinge is just like, well, here's a bent piece of steel, and it pops up, and mm-hmm. the, the hinge holds it, and then you put it down, and the hinge isn't really doing anything. Uh, the problem with the hinges, Sammy, is what? What's, what's the worst part of a gooseneck hinge? First of all, they impede on trunk space. They really do. And I also have an issue with um, how reliable they are in terms of holding a, a trunk up. I find some of them don't just don't – they have to be all the way up or, or, or that's it, right? Like you have to make sure it's up and staying up before you can start loading things into a, into a trunk. Yeah, I mean it's a hinge and not a support. Like a strut is a support. Yeah, a strut but supports it, and I, I really appreciate that. I think it's really important because then you can just – you don't have to be worried about the car trying to chop your head off while you're doing stuff. Yeah, and the wind isn't going to blow it down on your head either, which is always yeah. nice. I mean I've had that happen and it sucks. It's awful. I, I agree with Tim. I, I really do think that those goose, those gooseneck uh, hinges are completely um, – they're awful. They really do impact uh, cargo space or can, can – if you're not careful with the placement of you know groceries or whatever cargo you might have – they can damage some of your cargo too as it rests on or sits on it. You know what's funny is uh, talking about costs. So uh, my my Cadillac CTSV has uh, it, it uses you know some cars use a, a hood prop at the yep. at the front and some use struts right. Yep. So struts are typically found on higher end cars for the same reasons we just discussed. But the um, on my car there's only one strut. And it's on one side of the car. And that strut, it's not strong enough to hold the hood. Like, it's strong enough now, but over the lifetime of the strut, it gradually weakens and the hood starts falling on you and it sucks. Uh The reason I'm bringing this up is because the car was originally obviously designed for two struts. On the other side, there's the bolt holes for where you would connect the identical strut. (laughs) But what happened was... Cadillac looked at that and they were like, eh, we don't want to pay for two struts. That'll double our costs. And they just wiped it out of the budget. So you end up with a a design solution that kind of sucks because a bean counter was like, we'll save some money here. What a lot of people do is they just buy another strut and attach it themselves. And, you know, they've circumvented Cadillac's accounting department. But that's that's on a Cadillac that was very expensive at the time it was released in, in 2004. Uh, my car, <clears throat> my the the FRS, the Scion FRS, is, as well as the Toyota 86 and the Subaru BRZ has struts at the back and not gooseneck hinges, which I really appreciate. 
um, as a car with limited amount of cargo space, you don't have those gooseneck hinges taking up anymore. Yeah, and you'd figure that all small cars would have that, but no. If you look at like the original, no. Miata, the original Miata or the Jetta, yeah, yeah, they, these are small small trunks, and they they have gooseneck hinges. It's wild. Um, okay, that's that's another great uh, question. If you also have a question that you'd like us to answer, or if you have a note that you want to send us, um, say for example, if you didn't like our uh, description of the Toyota, the Subaru Baja, or the Aston Martin Signet. You can easily do that. You can go to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. When you're there, you go to the contact form, you fill it out, and it lands right into our inbox. It's super easy, just like that. Additionally, you can send us an email the old-fashioned way. Um, just type in the two field. You write Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com, and then you fill out your email and – Man, do I really have to be telling you how to send an email at this point? Yeah, apparently you feel obligated to (laughs) to explain a very old concept. Uh, In addition to that, you can reach out to us on social media. You can find Ben uh, on Instagram. He's at HuntingBenjamin. And you can find me um, on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. Um, And additionally, when you're on our website, you can see all of our old episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast using whatever your favorite podcast client uh, is or you can just click on some of the buttons on our website. It's super easy. All right, goodbye everybody. Bye. <laughs>